If you'll join me in Colossians chapter 2. This morning, Colossians chapter 2, we're going to be looking at verses 6 through 10. And the title of our sermon this morning is Walking in Christ. Key words for our worshipers and training are philosophy, built, and filled. If you want to follow along in the Blue ESV Bible, you can find our text on page 984, page 984. I want to ask, how are you doing? That's a question that we're asked and we ask others all the time, isn't it? How are you doing? But I don't mean the kind of small talk sense where we simply expect everyone to say, I'm well, how are you? And by the way, you should say, I'm well, not I'm good. You're not good, you're well. In southern speak, you say, I'm good, yai. No, I mean your thinking, your attitude, your heart, your desires, and the way that you're processing things. How are you doing with those? Most of you know in the academic field of study I have undertaken, I have to read a lot of very troubling ideas and philosophical propositions. And then I have to make connections into how I see those ideas playing out in real life all around us. And these ideas I'm interested in discovering because their roots are in some very destructive ideas. And that gets difficult to have to read sometimes. It can be incredibly discouraging. It can be heartbreaking to see how these things play out. And sometimes it leaves me with a sense of helplessness. As I look at the world around me and I, and I consider all the ways that there are really some disastrous ideas being played out in front of me, From day to day, most people have no idea. Some people don't want to have any idea and want to walk in willful ignorance. It's really easy to just sort of throw our hands up and say, what's the point? And so when that happens with me, I become a prophet in my own mind, thinking that I know what's going to happen in the future and how everything is going to turn out. I forget the promises. And while it's important to be able to discern the outcome of circumstances, to see consequences of ideas and actions, there's often a way that we do that that is completely hopeless. We forget some very important truths about our own lives and about, and about God and how he, he works things out. All of us can think about times in our lives when we've made assumptions about how things were going to turn out. And then something completely different happens. We can all think about times when we assume the worst, and then everything turned out better than we could have ever hoped or imagined they would turn out. We look at circumstances, we look at everything going on in certain situations, and we don't see how it could ever go well, and then all of a sudden it goes very well. As Christians, we need to be aware of this reality. We need constant reminders of the things that are indeed not what they seem. Or they won't always go the way that we expect them to go. As Christians, we have every reason in the world to be hopeful. To walk with assurance. To walk with a great expectation that the the end of all things is far greater than the beginning. And listen, I'm saying this to myself this morning just as much as everyone else. I'm not pointing any fingers anywhere except right at me. I struggle with this. I know I've talked to some of you who do the same. And let's be real, I read your Facebook posts. 
when new election cycles come around, or when there's a new Supreme Court decision, or when leadership changes at your workplace, or when your kids get into trouble, or when your neighbor plants a tree and his leaves only fall into your yard, or when the economy takes a downturn, or when you have bad medical news. We all have scenarios, we all have circumstances, we all have trials and difficulties that arise in our lives that we have to respond to, and the question that we need to work out is how. How am I going to respond to this? How am I going to react to this? How will what I say and what I do display to everyone around me what I am walking in? Am I walking in my own wisdom, my own understanding, my own finite ability to affect change, or am I walking faithfully in Christ? Am I being a faithful Christian in the midst of my circumstances? As we look at our next few verses in Colossians, in verses 6 through 10, we're reminded that up to this point, maybe you realize that the Apostle Paul, so far in this letter, hasn't really given us any kind of imperatives, has he? He's had a lot to say about the Lord Jesus Christ and and who he is and what he has done, but we are a generation of people who are very quick to ask, but what about me? (laughs) What does this mean for me? Just tell me what to do. But Paul doesn't let us do that in this letter. He doesn't just let us jump right into a list of imperatives because he doesn't want to leave us with the impression that the things that need to be done can be done by us without knowing Christ, without knowing about Christ, without having a grasp of who Christ is and what Christ has accomplished. So the first part of the letter that we looked at is full of the Lord Jesus Christ. And guess what? It continues this morning in the same way, but we do get a first, the first look at the oughtness of what Paul is writing, what we ought to do in light of Christ, in light of who he is, and all that Paul has told us about him, in light of what he has done, and all that Paul has explained about that, what ought we to do? How ought we to respond to our circumstances? That's our focus that Paul brings us to. What does it look like for me to walk in Christ as a faithful Christian? So let's read together beginning in verse 6. Therefore, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in Him, rooted and built up in Him, and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. For in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you have been filled in him who is the head of all rule and authority. Now let's be reminded once again that the occasion for Paul's writing this letter to the Colossians was his concern for a false teaching that had had entered into the door of the church in Colossae. Remember, they were starting to believe, some of them, the false teaching of Gnosticism. And the Gnostics had a whole host of different false ideas that were being used to take some of the Christians captive. And so, even though Paul had never been to Colossae, he did not know the people, he did not plant the church there, he was nevertheless very concerned about the purity of the church and the faithfulness of the church. 
And so he wrote to them out of a great concern to remind them about Christ, Christ in whom they had believed, Christ in whom they had trusted. And so remember, all of chapter 1 was this, this beautiful reminder of the supremacy of Christ over all things. And, and Paul laid out the deity and the power and the preeminence of Christ. And then last week, we saw Paul's reminder of the importance of the church and especially being knit together in love in the local body of Christ that we might walk with one another, being protected from false teachers, and that we might know more of Christ and His glory and all of His benefits. So this morning, we begin to see some movement in the letter. It's a bit of a a pivot for Paul as we begin a bit more application of what he has taught us thus far. So the first thing we see in verses 6 and 7 is that being a faithful Christian means we continue to walk in Christ. Our verse begins with that very important word, therefore. When we see that, we need to consider what he said prior so that we can understand where he's going in his argument. Very simply, remember, as I've just said, Paul gives us this picture of Christ who is preeminent over all things. And he painted this picture and he shows us that Jesus is worthy of all things. He is worthy of our worship. He's worthy of our praise. He's worthy of all honor. He's worthy of all the glory that we can give to him. Therefore, Since you have believed on this Christ, you have received this Christ, so walk in Him. That's what we get here. Now, Paul's talking about one of the most precious doctrines of the Christian faith, and that is our union with Christ. There's a very helpful quote from the Puritan John Flavel here. It's a little bit lengthy, but I think it's, it's worth our effort because it's so helpful. So hang with me. I'll try to explain it as we get through it. This is... John Flavel, he says this, We are as able to stop the sun in its course or to make the rivers run backward as by our own skill and power to rule and order our own hearts. We may as well be our own saviors as our own keepers. And yet Solomon speaks accurately enough when he says, Keep your heart, because the duty is ours although the power is God's. A natural man has no power. A gracious man has some, though not enough. And whatever power he has depends on the invigorating and assisting strength of Christ. Grace within us is indebted to grace without us. Jesus said, without me, you can do nothing. So you see, what John Flavel is describing is something that Paul points out right here in the beginning in verse 6. Our union with Christ is something that is received. It's passive on our part. We are redeemed in Christ, and when we are redeemed in Christ, we're brought into everlasting union with Christ. And now in our union with Christ, we're duty-bound to keep on believing and trusting and depending on Christ. And yet, we fully know in the midst of that, that we keep doing these things, in Flavel's words, only by the invigorating and assisting strength of Christ. So Paul exhorts us and says, you have passively received redemption in Christ, you have received Christ, and He has done all of that in you and for you and through you, and now you are in union with Christ, so walk in Him. But how can we? I'm no longer an enemy of God, I'm now a child of God. I am His friend. 
I am united to Christ, as Paul says in Galatians 2.20. I've been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And now that I live this life in this flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. So the instrumentality by which we came into new life as Christians, faith in Christ, is the very thing I now live in day by day, having been crucified with Christ. And this new Christ union life is a life that I cannot, indeed I will not go on living as I once did. We are crucified to the world and the world to us. The world loses its sparkle in the eyes of the Christian as we continue to grow in holiness. And we have no beauty in the eyes of the world either, do we? And so we no longer live for ourselves, but for the preeminent, glorious one who died and rose again. And so we all know 2 Corinthians 5, 17. If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. Another way to say that is, if anyone is united to Christ, he is a new creation. You see, they are analogous. A believer who is united with Christ is a believer who is a new creation. The old man, the old woman is dead. And any attempts to revive them is like giving mouth-to-mouth resuscitation to an old, dead, rotting corpse. It is of no use. So we have passively received Christ and all of His benefits. We've been brought into everlasting union with Him. So now I am called by Paul to walk in Him, and that also I do by faith. All of our spiritual life, as Flavel pointed out, must come from the Lord Jesus Christ. It flows from Him to us by the gracious activity of His Holy Spirit. And if we have true union with Christ, it is immovable, it is unwavering, it is everlasting. Now, I think it's helpful here for us to think about what Paul means when he exhorts us to walk in Christ. By considering, first, what he does not mean by this statement. Paul does not mean that the Christian life is primarily about following the example of Jesus. Jesus is not, first and foremost, an example to be followed. That may be a surprising statement because it's a pretty popular idea, but I want to explain. Despite what the 1990s evangelical culture tried to teach us, when we encounter situations in life, the question we ask should not be, what would Jesus do? The idea of that statement is that I can encounter a situation, and if I don't have a clear answer as to what to do, I consider, what would Jesus do, and I just do that thing. The problem is... If it's not something that's written in the Bible, we don't know what Jesus would do in that situation, do we? In fact, wasn't that one of the big things that was always going on throughout his entire life on earth and we read about so often in the Gospels and what confused so many people, even his disciples? We think we know what Jesus would do, but then he does something completely different, right? That was at the heart of his ministry, The people he often hung out with, the things he did, the way that he did them, nothing at all like what anyone expected. And in many instances, that was exactly the point. So remember, Jesus' ministry, it began at a wedding feast in Canaan. And what happened? The wine ran out. 
Now, maybe the host was cheap and he didn't expect, or he didn't expect so many people to show up. Everyone was having a good time. The wine was flowing, and that's usually when the cheap stuff comes out because by then nobody really knows the difference at that point in the party. But it was gone, whatever the, the situation was. So, do we ask in that situation, what would Jesus do? Well, what would he do? Many well-meaning misguided evangelicals might say, well, that just proves that God didn't want you to have wine in the first place. But that's not what Jesus did, is it? Instead, he called for three pots of water and turned it into the best wine they had ever had. Everyone was even shocked by how good it was. Yes, Jesus turned water into wine, but it wasn't two buck chuck. It, was the, it wasn't Boone's Farm. It didn't come out of a box. It was the stuff that they sell for $100,000 at an auction. So you see, it's, it's foolhardy to assume that we can know what Jesus would do in every situation if it's not recorded for us in Scripture. But here's the problem. Even if we did know, first, would you really do it? And second, could you really do it? You might assume, yes, just show me the way of Jesus and I will follow that way. Really? We know how Jesus forgave others. Do you forgive in the way that Jesus forgives? That's the ultimate picture of forgiveness. But here's the deal. You can't do that. You can't forgive in the way Jesus does. And in the midst of your anger and frustration and bitterness, you have no desire to do so, even though you're commanded to do so. To do what Jesus would do, not only do we know what he would do, even when we we don't always know, but even when we do, we're either not willing or not able. Paul is not admonishing us here to follow the example of Jesus. Yes, we're called in scriptures to be imitators of God, but that's more than just using Jesus as an example or trying to guess what Jesus would do or to assume that we could or would do what Jesus would do, even if we could know. So when Paul writes, walk in Christ, it does not mean walk like Christ, but he means something far more profound here. What Paul does mean is that our walk, our living, ought to reflect our union with Christ. Walk in Him. That's altogether different. So what he's admonishing for believers is that our lives, our walk, our manner in living ought to reflect our intimate union with the Lord Jesus Christ. To walk in Christ is to walk in the newness of life because the old has died, never to be made alive again. All of our comings, all of our goings, all of our doings, all of our sayings, all of the seasons of life, here's what we need to know. When you go through the storm, you don't need to just get Jesus. You need to know that you are in Jesus. And when you're in the valley of the shadow of death, you don't need to call and try to get something. You already have everything that is necessary because you are hidden in Christ Jesus. When you're dealing with difficult situations, when you're dealing with difficult people, remember that you are in Christ Jesus. And so this is a declaration of who you are and what you are in Christ. So continue to walk in that. So Paul's exhortation is to walk, again, not like Jesus, but walk in Jesus. Let the reality of who you are in Christ shine brightly for all to see. In all areas of life, 
If you're trying to imitate Christ, your own shortcomings will not allow you to be who he was and is. You can't do it. That's why you need him. (laughs) Your own shortcomings and prejudices and failures and phobias and, and all of that baggage that we all carry with us will not let you be who Jesus is. But faith connects you to who he is. And so Paul is reminding us that we are his and he is ours, so we are to walk in union with him, and that will be reflected in all of our interactions with others. Now Paul writes in verse 7 that we do this as those who are rooted and built up in him and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. He gives us two metaphors here. The first is that of trees uh, or It's plants of some sort, and as faithful believers like trees, we send our roots down deep and wide and deep into the soil of Christ, and in so doing, what happens? We draw from His lifeblood. If our roots are not deepening, if our roots are not spreading and growing larger and longer, we know what happens on the other end of the plant, right? The leaves aren't growing properly, we're not producing fruit. And so you see, there's an absolute dependence And we see this again on the part of the the believer. With trees, the general rule is that the visible spread of the branches is roughly equal to to the invisible spread of its root system. The deeper and more widespread our roots in Christ, the greater shade, fruit, and beauty we provide on the end that everyone else can see. He also uses the metaphor of a building built up in Him. The foundation that believers rest on is Christ and in Christ. It's the same idea here. We cannot build a solid structure if we do not have a solid foundation. And that foundation must be immovable. That foundation must not crack. That foundation must not allow moisture in to corrode it. We need a solid foundation that we can trust because there's a lot of weight that's going to be added to the top of it. When an earthquake comes, like in Southern California, has been having all weekend... We want to make sure that the structure is sound. But a structure is only as sound as its foundation. And so the more of our lives that we build on Christ, the more sound the structure will be. And all of this, Paul continues in verse 7, leads to an overflowing gratitude. When we are reminded yet again of what God has done in Jesus Christ, that we can walk in Him, that we can respond in a way that is nothing but what flows out of the heart of a believer, which is absolute thanksgiving. Friends, if you're not in Christ, let me tell you what makes me and every Christian in this room so thankful. It's that we recognize we are a people who has broken God's holy law, which is perfect in every way. And there is no way that I can live up to or fulfill what He has commanded because if you're not a Christian, even you will agree with me that you're not a perfect person. And you know that because God's law is written on your heart. And when that gives testimony to you of what God's standard is, you know you are condemned. And yet, God the Father sent His Son, Jesus Christ, to live a perfect life to fulfill that law on our behalf. And in so doing, also died the death that we deserve as sinners, taking our place, putting on himself the full wrath of God, and exchanging by faith his righteousness for our sin. So that as we believe in him by faith, 
we can stand upon the foundation, the solid, immovable foundation of His right standing before the Father instead of trying and failing to stand upon our own. That makes every believer's heart sing with joy. That I need not stand before the Father with the perfect standard, having failed on my own, having to answer for that on my own, but I stand in the righteousness of Christ that the Father will declare for me and for all who believe on Christ not guilty. That fills the believer with thanksgiving. And so, Christian, as it pertains to walking in Christ, abounding in thanksgiving, how are you doing? Second thing, verse 8. Being a faithful Christian means rejecting any man-made ideas that can take us captive. There's no doubt that the Gnosticism that Paul was confronting in the Colossian church was a man-made idea, a philosophical formulation that promised deeper knowledge, more genuine faith, and a better life. It's the same things that are put forward and uh, that we hear from every cult that exists. The idea of justification by faith alone for many people just seems too simple. It seems too easy. It doesn't involve enough of me doing some kind of work or putting forth any kind of personal effort so that I can earn something. So there has to be more to it than this. In fact, all this talk about Jesus dying on the cross to take on the wrath of God, that's a bit simplistic. And to say that we can just benefit from that by faith, the benefits of his death are ours, that's not very intellectually stimulating. So we need something more. That's what every cult is about. Now, false teachers with new ideas don't just come in and overturn everything right away to get you to believe something new. That would never work. No, they take their time. They move incrementally. First, maybe it's, you know, we have the Scriptures But we also need to hear a fresh word from the Lord. And over time, they're able to undermine the sufficiency of Scripture because everyone starts to move away from depending on God's Word and understanding God's Word and hearing from God's Word and instead starts trying to have mystical experiences with God. And then, in time, those supposed words from the Lord start to be words that can hold an authoritative place in the lives of His people and in His church. And so when someone says, the Lord told me that we need to do this, whatever that is, even though whatever that thing is has no grounding in Scripture, we, uh, who are we to question what the Lord said to them, right? You see, Scripture is being chipped away at. And then before long, you have all things unraveling. Everyone starts to dress differently and they start to gather together. Maybe they move away and join a compound together somewhere distribute all the funds they make to each other. The sky's the limit. It happens. It happens probably more often than you think. It's estimated in America that there are over two and a half million people who are in cults if you don't include Mormonism and Jehovah's Witness. And if you include those numbers, you're almost at 10 million Americans. There's a massive cult in Savannah. And when people leave those cults, do you know what all of them say? They say, I can't believe I ever fell for that. I never thought I would be a person who was a member of a cult. 
I had no idea. And when you're in that, you have no idea. You just think you're more spiritual. You think you've been more enlightened than others. Your, your leadership is wiser and more godly and more enlightened than others. And you make excuses for all of your odd behavior. You cut off others who don't think like you or act like you or those who question your lifestyle and your beliefs. You become completely isolated not only from sound teaching, because your teachers are generally the only ones you would think worth listening to, but you're also cut off from the reality of the world. It's a frightening reality. And that faced the church at Colossae, that faces the church today. Brothers and sisters, it is everywhere around us. I know pastors, men who would, we would have thought were faithful men of the faith. They've abandoned it wholesale. They've joined strange cults or followed after completely anti-Christian philosophies, even denouncing Christ entirely. I know several people who were once living lives that appeared from everyone's perspective to be walking in Christ, but they were introduced to some strange philosophy that promised them that they could live the good life outside of the church, outside of Scripture, outside of Orthodox Christianity, and they followed, and their ship ran into the rocks on the shore, and they proved themselves to have never been believers in the first place. I know of an entire church in Atlanta that did this. So this is a strong exhortation. This is a very important exhortation from Paul here. Don't be taken captive. People will try. They will seek to influence you. They will try to recruit you. Don't do it. You know, this is why we are so particular about theology and the things that are taught and who gets to teach and what books we want to recommend or warn you about. We've had people upset over the years because we wouldn't allow certain things or we wouldn't use certain resources or, or do certain Bible studies or whatever that is. Once I had a man tell me that we were too concerned about being precise and I was overjoyed that we were gaining that reputation. <laughs> Listen, I'm void of neuroticism, so I'm not too concerned about being attacked or making unpopular decisions, but we do that. We have to do that if we love you. In just the same way that I don't let my four-year-old son go out on Goshen Road to play, I don't want to flippantly say that we should just read or listen to or study anything and everything without discernment, without concern, without clarity of knowing the errors involved and just assume it's no big deal. We like how it's written and the person is a great communicator. You know who else are great communicators? Cult leaders. You can't run a cult if you can't be a good communicator and write convincing books and preach convincing sermons. Don't be naive. There's captivating teaching that can easily draw you away from Christ if you're not discerning, if you're not built up and rooted in and built upon and walking in Christ continually, bathing yourself in the Word of God. You're not smart enough or wise enough or impervious enough to deceit as you might think, and neither am I. So here's a good standard to ask of anything that we hear. Is it consistent with the clearly revealed teaching of Scripture? Notice I said clearly revealed because something false teachers are good at doing. Certainly it's what the Gnostics were doing. is twisting the unclear portions of Scripture to build theological positions that are strange and often used to advance their agenda. It's the exact thing that prosperity preachers do. Those charlatans that take every passage they can find and turn it into something about you giving them all of their money. 
So make sure that what you're hearing is consistent and clearly revealed in Scripture, and then ask, does this make me see and trust and follow the Lord Jesus Christ more faithfully? If not, then run away. It's why Paul commended the Bereans, because they didn't just let him get away with preaching a sermon and taking his word for it, did they? They went back and they looked in their Bibles. They knew the Scriptures, they studied the Scriptures, and as a result, they were able to continue walking faithfully in Christ without being led astray, without being taken captive. And so likewise... We, too, must be bathed in the Scriptures. It's one of the reasons we have a historic confession of faith. We have guardrails to help us understand the major teachings of Scripture. And you, as members of this church, have every right and every obligation that if you ever hear anything contrary to that, to bring it up, to challenge it. And if ever you're at a church that doesn't have a clearly identified statement of faith or better, a confession of faith then get away. (laughs) Listen, brethren, we're talking about our eternal souls here. Let's not trifle with them. Let's not be flippant about how we protect them. Let's not be nonchalant about the ideas we're, we're hearing without comparing them to Scripture, lest we begin to believe and follow something that is not according to Christ. We must be on guard that we not be pulled away by false teaching. Finally, verses 9 and 10 show us being a faithful Christian means you have been filled in Christ. So much could be said here, but we don't have time, so we'll save most of it for another day. But notice two things very quickly in our final verse, our final two verses this morning. First, the fullness of God in Christ, and second, the fullness of Christ in us. It's Christ from beginning to end, isn't it? But he's the only one worth speaking about because he's the only one worthy of our worship. And he is the only one who transforms our lives. So so Paul's calling on Christians to immerse ourselves in the fullness of Christ. And all throughout this letter, he never gets away from this principle. The fullness of life can only be experienced by us when we've grasped, when we've seen, when we've loved the fullness that there is in Jesus Christ himself. Notice how he describes him. The whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. If that is true, and I believe that it is, why would we look anywhere else in the entire universe for some kind of better life or greater life or greater knowledge or understanding when the fullness of God himself dwells in Jesus Christ? Think about the parable that Jesus told about the man who he went out to a field and when he discovered there was a treasure in that field, he covered it up, he went home, he sold all that he had and he went back and purchased that field in order that he might have that treasure because he knew that if he had that treasure, he could thereafter buy anything he ever wanted or needed. And that's what Paul is saying here. Get the riches that are there in the fullness of Jesus Christ. Don't settle for second best. Don't settle for false teaching. Don't settle for nonsensical philosophies and deceitful ideas. Don't settle. You need, you have the fullness of Christ. The problem is that you only know you've settled for second best when you finally encounter the best. Perhaps some of you 
Maybe you listen to country music for a while, but then you accidentally turn the station one day and you realize that basically every other station on the radio is better. So you quickly grow a distaste for that stuff and wonder why you ever listened to that. How could you? <laughs> I remember when I was a teenager, I grew up in Colorado, and I was really into snowboarding. And my first ever snowboard, I thought it was just amazing. I kept it in my bedroom instead of the garage so nothing would happen to it. I waxed it and I cleaned it every chance that I could get. And then one time I went snowboarding with some friends from school and they looked at my board and I looked at theirs and I realized that my parents had bought me the Dr. Thunder of snowboards. You know what I'm talking about. It's supposed to be kind of like Dr. Pepper, but it's Dr. Thunder. And even though she knows it's not true, your mom tries to convince you that it tastes just like the real thing. Yeah, I had that in my snowboard, and immediately I knew I had second best. I didn't have what I thought I had. Yeah, it, it worked fine, but I had second best. And I didn't know that until I saw the best. And then I tried the best, and oh my goodness, I wasn't satisfied at all with what I had. It seemed fine until what I saw that was better. Now, in the material world, that obviously can be a very bad thing, and you will never reach the end of that. But speaking spiritually, maybe you think, Jesus doesn't seem great to me, Jesus doesn't mean all that much to me, but it's because you've been living in a famished way on a terrible spiritual diet. But when Jesus Christ, in all of his fullness, creator of the universe, reconciler of sinners, Lord of all, is fixed in the gaze of your faith, then, says Paul, you realize you have been taken captive by something else. As far as you were concerned, something less than Christ was satisfying you good enough. But it's only because you've never discovered the fullness that is in Jesus Christ. And unless you know him in his glory and his majesty and his supremacy and the wonder of his love and the tenderness of his kindness and the direction of his word, then you will settle for second best. And if it's not Jesus, that's all that's left is second best. And it comes way down the list in terms of where it ranks. And notice, Paul doesn't say be filled or be complete in Christ. He says you have been filled. Because of Christ, you are filled in Christ. This is not a command. There are not five steps to becoming complete in Jesus. If you are a believer, you are filled with Christ. Whatever else it means to walk in Christ, and it means a lot, it means at least that you're filled and complete in Christ, not lacking anything that would keep you from giving honor and glory to God, from being accepted by God, or from being an heir and a child of God. You are united to Christ, and in your union with Christ, you are full of Christ, and you are His forevermore. And so when that is your reality and someone asks you, how are you doing? It's then that you can say, I'm doing really, really, really well. No matter what your circumstances are, if nothing else, I'm filled with Christ. That's far better than any of us deserves. Let's pray together. Father, thank you again for your word, for your kindness this morning for bringing us here together. That as your word says, we could knit our hearts together in love and as we hear your word to be challenged to consider our own lives, 
to be reminded of the great promises, Lord. That what you call us to be and do in our lives is based fully upon whom we stand. In whom we are rooted in. The one who is our foundation. Who is our righteousness. And it is by faith that you have granted to us this gift of Christ. And so, Lord, help us to not be deceived or or pulled away into strange ideas and philosophies of man, but help us, O God, to find our solid foundation in Christ alone. Help us to not waver from the truth of your word. Help us to be discerning. Help us to know what is right and true. Help us to keep ourselves tethered to the scriptures that we not drift away. And Father, as we seek more of Christ, we are reminded that we walk in Christ because we are filled with Christ. And Father, no matter what's going on in our lives today, that's far greater than every one of us deserves. It's a gift. May we not take it for granted. And may you be glorified in our lives today and every day. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.